Before we begin, a heads up that this episode contains the sound of gunfire and stories which some listeners may find upsetting. I'm Ben Coley. I've been a presenter at BFBS The Forces Station for the past two and a half years. My second overseas posting was to the Falkland Islands, but I'll be dead honest, before I went, I hardly knew anything about the military conflict that happened there 40 years ago. In this series, I want to learn even more by hearing from those who were there. They realised then that we not only had the capability to strike at their heart in the Falkland Islands, all the way from Ascension Island, but also the will to execute such an operation. Having seen all the old World War II films of beach landings and everybody getting annihilated from the, on the front, it wasn't something we were looking forward to. All the shrapnel stayed in the water and all the water went over me. And I was left with a very droopy cigar and a mug full of salt water. We'd acclimatised the weather, perhaps, but we hadn't acclimatised it carrying all this kit across this country. He got on the tannoy and he said, we're just about to fire the first missile. It will kill people. He came up to me and said, sun rays down. Sun rays is codename for CO. I felt appalling. I mean, I'd sent him there. It was my fault. He's died. The ship was starting to roll. There was fire all around the ops room. And I saw the picture of my wife and my two boys and decided my life was not going to end here. Join me on the journey from invasion to liberation. This is Falklands 82, stories from the South Atlantic. So, the first shots at sea had been fired, and both sides had suffered their first losses. It was a time to get some British boots on the ground. Michael Clapp was Commodore in charge of amphibious land forces. He decided that San Carlos, an inlet on the northwest coast of East Falkland, was the best place for troops to land. One of the reasons for going to St Carlos was the water was deep enough for ships like the Canberra. So I placed the Canberra on the northern end, thinking that they were going to come down from the north or from up from the south, and she would be awkwardly placed because there would be land in the way. But they came from the west, much to our surprise. And so they were flying low over the hills. And then St. Carlos Water was a north-south, fairly thin strip. And they would come in and, blimey, there's another hill over the other side there, you know, half a mile away. Where the ships, they're all spread out like that sideways. So they were dashing around, trying to decide which ship they wanted to attack and so on. That I had not expected. Michael planned the landings, codenamed Operation Sutton, with Julian Thompson, commander of 3 Commando Brigade. The landing was at midnight, and there was some discussion between myself and Mike over this, and it's typical how you do it, is that I wanted to land at last light and have the whole night to get myself sorted out in peace and quiet because the Argentines didn't have an all-weather capability of air. He quite naturally wanted to land at first light, so he had all darkness to do the long passage in. So we split it down the middle. Typical sort of British compromise. So we went to the lowering position, as it's called, which is outside St. Carlos in Portland Sound, and anchored. Then the craft were floated out and everyone was loaded and off we went. So the first two waves started outside in Falkland Sound and went in through the straits into St. Carlos itself. And then the third wave 
we took the ships in and then you started landing everything, the big heavy stuff. Now, everything was okay. There were no air attacks in the first two waves because it was in darkness. It was when we'd started the third phase of landing the, the, the guns and stores from the ships that the air attacks started, and they started at about 8 o'clock in the morning or 9 o'clock, which is just a, an hour after dawn, because it's a 14-hour night in the winter there. For a whole day, we were under air attack. Ian Bailey from 3 Para was on a platoon landing craft. The platoon landing craft, you know, it gets 30 people on it. It's not a huge ship, boat, whatever the Navy will call it. You know, we had two GPMGs on the front. The door would go down, three NCOs at the front to lead off. And we didn't know up until just before we hit the beach if it was going to be an opposed landing or we were going to step off and be met by somebody. We, we really didn't know up until that point. That was the apprehension. Having seen all the old World War II films of beach landings and everybody getting annihilated from the, on the front, it wasn't something we were looking forward to. But we had to head, and, you know, and that's what we did and deployed. And when we actually deployed, we just before we hit the beach, we were told it was going to be unopposed, but still be alert. Trust me, having been there, the Falklands aren't really known for great weather, even though the wildlife is incredible. When I stepped off the plane, there was a howling, chilling wind, barren, rolling hills, and hardly any trees. The Falklands is a desolate place, as the ground troops quickly discovered. It was much the same as it could have been in any sort of island off the northwest uh, coast of Scotland. It was cold, wet and windy. It's like Dartmoor, Brecon, Otterburn all thrown into one. You're just cold to your bone, colder than I've ever been. Then there were no roads and you couldn't drive a wheeled vehicle off the beach. You couldn't, it wouldn't go anywhere. So one of my jobs was to prevent them wasting time going to places which I knew were non-starters. I was wearing jungle lightweights, which sounds ridiculous given that I was in the South Atlantic, but underneath those I was wearing long johns or ladies' tights. We cut up our uh, NBC bags and we're using them like a day sack to carry spare ammunition and stuff. We were wet from the time that we got off the boat uh, and we, we didn't get dry, I don't think, until we got to Port Stanley some six weeks later. For Royal Marine Rod Boswell, his birthday at San Carlos was one he'll never forget. As the sun was setting and it had been a quiet day, Bill Wright appeared and said, boss, you got the night off. I said, yeah, right. He said, no, I'm serious. You are going to bed. He said, but before you go to bed, you're going to have a cigar and a large glass of whiskey. <laughs> I said, you can't be sick. And he gave me a mug of, of, of malt whiskey. I don't know what brand it was, but it was bloody marvellous. And a big, big Churchill-type cigar. I have no idea where he got it from. And he said, just take yourself out and go and enjoy a whiskey and watch the sunset. So I did. I walked down the hill to the pier and sat on the end of the pier and watch the sunset whilst smoke. I don't smoke whilst puffing on this bloody great cigar and sipping my way through about a pint of whiskey. <laughs> and four aircraft came out of the southern end of the valley and two turned left and attacked Ajax Bay and two turned right and attacked me. <laughs> I watched them come. I thought, oh, 
don't believe this. And uh, I watched them open their bomb bays. I watched the bombs released. I watched the parachute come out the back a lot. And two of them went over my head and two of them went in the water in front of me. There were, there were two 50 pounders, I think. And the ones that went in the water in front of me both exploded, but all the shrapnel stayed in the water and all the water went over me, all of it. I mean, it was like a monster tidal wave went over my head and tried to flush me into the sea, but I managed to hang on. And I was left with a very droopy cigar and a mug full of salt water. Oh dear. Nice and dry, but facing some very different challenges, the RAF were keeping busy. Before ground troops had set foot on Falklands Beach, Operation Black Buck was making an impact on Argentine targets. A series of seven ambitious long-range ground attacks, it was the most daring RAF mission since the Dambusters raid in World War II. I think it's fair to say there's a great deal of excitement in the air on ascension amongst the crews as to just how this next phase of the Falklands War was going to develop. Bob Tuxford was a Victor pilot, responsible for refuelling the Vulcan bombers that were making the 3,900-mile journey across open water from Ascension Island to the Falklands. We were developing our procedures to some extent as we went along. We spent a lot of time sitting out there on the clinker with a can of beer discussing how best to perform these rendezvous in situations that had not arisen before. And then in terms of putting a plan together, a, a complicated plan would be needed to get all of these aeroplanes down to the target area in one. In order for every Vulcan bomber to reach its target, they had to be refuelled. Eleven Victor tanker aircraft were assigned to two Vulcans. They had to transfer fuel to the Vulcans and each other in a complex refuelling relay before each turned in sequence for home. Flight Lieutenant Martin Withers was captain of the spare bomber Vulcan 607. We then went out to the aircraft. It was a hot night still, in about 30 degrees during the day. We were wearing so much clothing you wouldn't believe for survival if we had to jump out into the Atlantic Ocean. So we climbed our aircraft, everybody was doing it at the same time, everybody was coming out, the Victor crews were getting on. We'd been given an order in which we were taxiing out. The aircraft itself had been sort of prepared for us, all the bombs were on board. We strapped in, getting very hot and sweaty, and then the engines started up one after the other, no radio calls because there was a Russian trawler off, off the coast listening in to everything we did and we didn't know which side Russia was on. We taxied out and lined up for takeoff and then the victors going first. The first sortie didn't start well. The primary Vulcan reported a failure and had to return to base, which meant that Martin and his crew had to take over. I'm told that I said something like, Sounds as though we've got a job to do, boys, which I claim straight out of boys' own comic. And then it was deathly silence because maybe they were talking to one another off the microphone down the back, but it uh, took a bit of swallowing. 
The target was the runway at Port Stanley Airport to prevent Argentine fast jets from using it. Obviously, we, we were really delighted in achieving the mission, which we everybody had thought was unlikely to succeed. But we didn't know where, whether we'd actually hit the runway until we got a, a photograph taken, supposedly by a sea harrier, but we think it was a Canberra PR Canberra that wasn't supposed to be there, which showed a crater right on the runway. I was so relieved that I was still alive, basically, that I uh, decided I would go down the back have a rest and I let the co-pilot and Dick just sitting up front to look after the shop and I went back and slept like a baby for about four hours. Well, the mission was a success and there was even time for a nap. But the return flight was not without incident. The Vulcan ran very low on fuel before the final Victor tanker managed to reach it. Martin Withers was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his role and his crew were mentioned in dispatches. Bob Tuxford was awarded the Air Force Cross. The major impact upon the Argentines was that they realised then that we not only had the capability to strike at their heart in the Falkland Islands, all the way from Ascension Island, but also the will to execute such an operation. Not only that, but once we'd proved that we could bomb them at their most vulnerable time, but also we could bomb the mainland should that be required. Thankfully, there was no need for that. The Black Buck raids continued for six weeks and became the longest range sorties in history at the time. They were supported by naval gunfire from the Royal Navy. John Reed and Andrew Kenyon were both radio operators on board HMS Arrow as she shelled enemy positions around Port Stanley. They were just 24 and 19 years old and presumably cursing their luck. We then became the first ship to be hit. All three ships were attacked by the same plane. We all got hit with the 20mm or 30mm cannon shells. We all not too hard a word to say, we all worshipped our skipper. He got on the tannoy and he said, we're just about to fire the first missile or shell. It will kill people. Yeah. If any of you have got any hang-ups about war, nothing we can do about it. I'll be quite honest, we didn't know what war was like. And everyone in the ops room, and you laugh about it now, we've been trained for years to fight wars. We all just throw our earphones off and hit the deck. And the skipper come on and said, right, we didn't do very well there, lads, did we? Let's do it better the next time. And then when the aircraft came in for its second time, everybody kept their earphones on. Everybody did what they should do. Me on the radio, other people, you know, on the radars, etc. On May the 25th, the destroyer HMS Coventry was instructed, along with HMS Broadsword, to act as a decoy in the northwest of Falkland Sound. Its job was to draw Argentine Skyhawks away from San Carlos Bay and attempt to bring them down. If that didn't sound risky enough, Coventry was positioned close to land, rendering her Sea Dart missiles less effective. It was a suicide trap. We were there as a missile trap using a Sea Dart, in theory, to take out any aircraft using that route where they get a clear run in down open water and not have to come over 
land, low overland. That's why we were put there. Chris Howe was a petty officer in Coventry's control room when she was attacked. The intelligence system had told us, or we had knowledge to say, four more aircraft on their way to you and using time and distance, because we knew they'd come over West Forks and low, and where we were again off Pebble Island, we couldn't see them on radar. Roughly speaking, we knew within a few minutes when they would be, if they were coming to us, and we assumed they would be coming to us, they would attack. And we were right. We were at Air A warning red. We were at action stations and we were expecting that incoming raid. And all eyes were looking down threat to where we expected them to come over the land off Pebble Island. And that's exactly what happened. The first two left. And as the shouts were going out, we got them visual. We got them on radar. I stood there turning around, talking to the captain who was literally back to back with me. So we're just about to be attacked by two enemy Skyhawks. And I think that with not seconds, literally, within saying that, there was this loud thud. And everything seemed to go to slow motion. The ship was starting to roll. There was fire all around the ops room. And I don't actually remember seeing anybody else in the ops room. I think there probably was, but I don't remember seeing them. And I remember thinking, this is where my life ends, but no, it's not. And I saw the picture of my wife and my two boys and decided my life was not going to end here. And I could hear water coming in from the port side. Made my way out into the passageway. The ladder was gone from the ops room up to the upper deck or to the bridge area, to the wardroom flat, and which led me to the upper deck. And I came across my buddy from the Sam McFarlane who grabbed me and helped me out. And it was handholds only, there was no ladders. And he assisted me to get out of the ship. From there, Chris was rescued and flown to HMS Uganda, where he spent five weeks recovering. So they winched me up to the Sea King. I remember going up to it and there was a big gust of wind and I remember my head going in towards the engine of the Sea King helicopter. And I was thinking, oh, my head's going to go in the Sea King. This day couldn't get any worse, surely. But the, the aircrew guy put his foot out and brought me in safely. My eyes were so swollen with the flash burns, I couldn't see for the first couple of days. One of Uganda's crew, who was a volunteer, actually, Merchant Navy volunteer, he did come up to me and spoke to me. He says, oh, I remember when you were wheeled in it, you looked like something out of the Hammer House of Horror. <laughs> Good for my morale, I thought. One thing I did realise, and not at the time, of course, was that I still had on my wedding ring and my St. Christopher, which I still have today. I woke up in Uganda and the ring, the nurse had put the ring around my chain with my St. Christopher. Meanwhile, over on dry, okay then, soggy land, ground troops were ready for a fight. 
After the successful landings at San Carlos, the plan was to transport troops south by helicopter to the higher ground five miles to the east of the capital Stanley, known as Mount Kent. But as Julian Thompson, commander of Three Commando Brigade, explains, there was a problem. I was trying to get D Squadron, SAS, forward to hold Mount Kent for us so we could then fly most of my guys in Chinooks, which were being brought south in Atlantic Conveyor, plus other helicopters as well, of course. The Chinooks was a key to it. And night after night, we had bad weather, blizzards, so the helicopters, though they had night vision goggles, couldn't fly to Mount Kent, and the, the visibility was just too bad. So night after night, we were frustrated in not getting people forward. At the same time, I had planned that we'd do a raid on Goose Green by two para. A raid, not to take the place, but to duff it up and, and make life difficult for them. This had two aims. One, to stop them coming and making our life difficult, because they're only about 20 miles away, or less. And secondly, to give them the idea that we might actually be thinking of going along the southern route via Goose Green and then along the track there through Fitzroy which again was a bit of a bluff. And then this became a complete distraction from the real mission, which was going on to, to Mount Kent. So I cancelled it. This then coincided with the sinking of Atlantic Conveyor with all our Chinooks bar one. The one that survived, survived without any tools or spares or manuals. So if all the red lights came on in the cockpit, the chap had to decide whether to go on flying or not, and he went on to his credit. So what are we going to do? We have to walk. Walk. Not really a military word, is it? In fact, that 56-mile walk across East Falkland over three days went down in history as the famous Royal Marines Yomp. YOMP is an acronym. It stands for Your Own Marching Pace. But let's not forget members of the Parachute Regiment who did it too. I should say here that they don't call it a YOMP, they say TAB, or Tactical Advance to Battle. I thought I'd better mention both, because in my job you don't want to fall out with the Paras or the Royal Marines. Anyway, moving on. Ian Gardner commanded X-Ray Company 4-5 Commando Royal Marines. We'd acclimatised the weather, perhaps, but we hadn't acclimatised to carrying all this kit across this country. We lost one or two men on that yacht, some with twisted ankles, twisted ligaments, broken ligaments. The wind is so clear in the Falklands that your estimation of distance is rather distorted. <laughs> Something that looked maybe a thousand metres away, two thousand metres away, was perhaps four or five thousand metres away. We were perhaps consuming six thousand calories each day. The rations were very good, but you needed to have them in order to eat them. And we didn't have any that first night. When you're that hungry, you can't think straight, your guts are in turmoil. The only thing you can think about is, where is the next meal coming from? The road ahead was long and miserable. If only they'd had those helicopters. Soon, the course of action changed for Tupara, as command had their sights set on another objective. I was summoned to the SATCOM 
which had just been established in Ajax Bay by Admiral Fieldhouse, and said, what's the problem? So I said, well, we're trying to get onto Mount Kent. We're trying to get our chaps forward onto Mount Kent. And eventually he said, everyone's getting very impatient, go and take Goose Green. I said, you mean capture it? He said, yes. And he was understandably quite worried about the fact they were losing a lot of ships and there wasn't any sort of visible progress being made. I assured him we weren't just hanging around doing nothing. So we now switch our attention to Goose Green. Uh, and I send H. Jones and two para down to Goose Green. I say to him, the raid you're going to do is off. I told him that some days before. You're now going to capture it. And he said, do you mean capture? I said, yes. I didn't want to do it. My, my intelligence staff had described it quite correctly as a, as a self-administering POW camp. You know, they'd lock themselves in there. Argentine soldiers had imprisoned local civilians in the village hall. It was two Paras' job to capture Goose Green under the command of Lieutenant Colonel H. Jones. This was the first land battle of the conflict, and news of it soon spread. Scots Guard platoon commander Robert Lawrence. We were hearing more about the diplomatic actions and information through higher echelons, passing information down, and I'm sure they were getting it from the BBC World Service. Although I shouldn't think the Paras were very pleased with the BBC World Service, who suddenly announced their position and maybe even numbers. Colonel H. Jones was not at all pleased, as Mike Kelly found out. I was detached with the MT platoon, who were designated as a defence platoon for the main headquarters, to go across and check some trenches which may have been missed during the night. We returned to main headquarters and there was a sort of a natural dip in the grass. There was loads of Argentinians laying face down, head to foot, with their hands on the back of their heads and taken prisoner. I was just listening to all the radio traffic. Colonel Jones was on the radio. He was clearly frustrated, to say mildly. He was shouting and screaming, you know, I want mortars, get me mortars. There are people dying up here. And um, I never heard him on the radio after that. In the distance, Brian Faulkner from 3Para knew that it was getting tense. The night that they put the action in against Coos Green, we'd started the tab across the island. Behind us, you could see it all going off. It was at the other side of the sound and you could, you could see it. And we sort of said, something's going off over there. He came up on the end and said, sun rays down. Sun rays is a code name for CO. I felt appalling when I'd sent him there, it was my fault. He's died. I mean, I couldn't dwell on it. It was in the middle of a fight. Colonel H. Jones was hit by machine gun fire. His wounds were fatal. Major Chris Keeble took command. Mike Kelly saw what happened next. Chris Keeble came over to me and said, right, we're off. And we got a few other guys and um, we picked up as much ammunition as we could carry. OC patrol company came walking up the hill and it was a bit like uh, one of these World War II movies. The, the ground was exploding all around him and he was just staggering up the hill and like, nothing touched him. You know, and he came over the top of the gorse line. We dragged him down. Chris Keeble came to me and said, 
okay, we're, we're going to go in the village now. And they, they come back and he said, we're going to go and negotiate a, um, a ceasefire. And I want you to stay here, all right? And I promise you, no one's going to shoot at you today. And I think I was quite sarcastic and I said, do that, would be really nice. We watched again from the gorse line, all these Argentinians come out, hundreds of them. We're like, who are these guys? So we, we tabbed into the village and it was um, surreal because there was probably only half a dozen of us in the settlement and there's all these Argentinians just walking about past us to, because they'd been told to go to the sheep shearing pens to be prisoners of war. But, you know, they were just ignoring us and we were like, it's all a bit odd. The locals had been locked in the village hall and they'd been kept in there for you know, a month or something, just had a you know a couple of toilets and a, you know and a sink. We opened the door and said, look, you can come out. You know, you're free, uh, but you need to stay here because we need to go and check your houses to make sure that they're safe for you to go back to. And they all came out. And I remember there was one lady carrying her baby, who was probably about the same age as my third son, probably about two months old. And he was crying, and he'd been in this building, and he got in Potigo, so he got all scabs. And I was like, absolutely raging. You know, why would anybody treat people like this? You know, Chris Keeble came over, he must have seen my facial expression. He went, are you all right? And I was like, oh, all these people have done this. And he was like, okay, just, you know, keep yourself calm. We're gonna look after them. Britain lost 18 men in the 14-hour battle, while 55 Argentinian soldiers were killed and 961 were captured. Colonel H. Jones was posthumously awarded Britain's highest military honour for gallantry in the face of the enemy, the Victoria Cross. Commander Julian Thompson looks back on the battle with mixed feelings. I under-resourced them. It was entirely my fault. H. Jones asked to have light armour, and I said, you can't have it. I don't want it bogged down on the way there. I should have taken another commando and gone myself and made a big operation out of it, in which case we would have got through much quicker. But all power to two paras elbow. They won it with very little help from anybody else, and, and good on them. Well done. Next time on Falklands 82, stories from the South Atlantic. When Goose Green's over, we were then able to give our full attention to getting on to Mount Kent. Uh, D's squadron were engaged in a firefight with Argentine Special Forces who at last had moved up onto Mount Kent and had they been up there on their own and uninterrupted by D squadron, it would have been a massacre. To have a female looking after you brought your spirits up and they were always talking to you and, I mean, one of the nurses sat with me and wrote a letter for me to my wife. The reality is, if you lose somebody in action, then you'll get a knock at the door at some point. I knew, I just knew, without having heard those words, that Gary was gone. I've typed messages up for the various newspapers. Yeah, we had probably four or five minutes of contact with the Daily Mail every day. And we were supposed to be self-censoring, but it was very easy just to switch the monitor off and go into the back room. This is an original BFBS podcast produced by me, Ben Coley, with Jess Bracey, Jade Calloway, Ginny Carlin and Tim Humphreys, with interviews from BFBS, The Forces Station and our friends at Forces News. Sound design and editing is by Joe Carden and Sean Harper, and our editor is Joe Waldron. Mm -hmm.